Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 74. We just finished hearing about Operation Ascari and a quick note. I said the Irland armoured car would no longer be used for cross-border operations after Ascari, but that's incorrect. A listener who was on board one of these airlines much later in 1987 explained how he was part of Operation Firewood where the airline was used across the cutline. Apologies for that. Thanks, Ian, for the correction. So, back to our story this episode, and it's an odd one indeed. FAPLA and the SODF were conducting patrols together as part of the Joint Monitoring Commission, or JMC, set up after the signing of the Lusaka Agreement in February 1984. It was supposed to be a precursor to a full ceasefire. The reality was neither the South Africans nor the Angolans were going to adhere to the agreement terms. Pretoria continued supporting UNITA, while FAPA, after an initial period of seemingly trying to impose discipline on SWAPO, gave up and allowed their planned fighters to continue infiltrating Ovumberland. SWAPO mortared the JMC joint patrols a number of times and firefights had developed through March, so I'm sure some of the Angolan soldiers were feeling just a tad schizophrenic. Still, the main JMC officials, both South Africans and the Angolans, gave the impression to each other that they were attempting to make this whole pre-ceasefire system work. The JMC HQ was supposed to shift south from Kuvalai from town to town through March and April 1984, where each time an area was declared free of all forces, including Swapu, the HQ would head to a town further south. It started at Kuvalai, and now in March, the JMC was based at Mupa. Next stop was supposed to be Avali. Before anyone was moving, however, the SEDF had to be convinced that the area around Mupa was clear. Five separate monitoring patrols were sent out between March 27th and 30th to determine what was going on. The first headed off to check the area east of Kasinga towards Chioku, and then along the Kaunda River towards Chetequera, where Swapu's Alpha Battalion had been lurking shortly before the Lusaka Agreement signing. The second headed out from the Kalunga Bridge south of Techimoteti along the Kalunga River towards a point just south of Kuvala. The third patrol headed off from a point 64 kilometers directly east of Mupa, near Chufafa, towards Mulola, and then headed down the Kuvalai River. This joint patrol was focused on the territory between Mupa and Ivali. And then finally, the last patrol turned to the area north of the Mupa Bridge, where Swapo's logistics bunkers had been based earlier in the year. While the FAPLA commanders told General Heldenhuis there were no Swapo insurgents nearby, Heldenhuis was not convinced. Events were to confirm his fears. On the 28th of March, the monitoring patrol spotted Swapo spoor around 15 kilometers north of Dover, heading southwesterly. This was a violation of the agreement. Then, on the 31st of March, a patrol near Kasinga discovered the tracks of more than 15 Swapo, about 10 kilometers southeast of the town, and these were also heading south instead of north. The JMC duly noted violation number 16 in the logbook. Things, though, were just getting started. On April 1st, April Fool's Day, a section of 20 Swapo combatants mortared the SADF's Cape Corps at Kaluk with 20mm shells. It was almost impossible to stop these random acts. We must remember that southern Angola was one of the most anarchic places on planet Earth during this time. Things quietened down again, and a meeting was held between Lieutenant General Gleason and FAPLA's Lieutenant Colonel Montero about possibly shifting further south. Then the heaviest rains in years hammered down from the end of the first week of April, and by the 13th, roads and bridges were underwater. This meant the deployment of the joint teams was impossible, 
all the rivers, Kuneni, Kalonga, Mwe, Kuvalai, Kaundu, as well as the Bale and the powerful Kavango, were all flooding. Mupa was now cut off after the bridge 14 kilometers north of town disappeared in the deluge. The SAA force was flying in food and material by Puma, but Fapla was experiencing some problems. They couldn't keep up with their logistic supply demands. So the SADF then went out on patrol by itself between the 9th and the 12th of April, concentrating on the muddy land east of Mupa. Swapu's favorite infiltration route was there along the Kasinga, Jaula, Gluma, Kufafa and Mulola track that they had developed over the years. While they marched about searching for Swapu, South Africa's presence had an unusual effect. The local population took advantage of the peaceful moment and headed back home, returning in droves to their homes around Mupa. The South Africans spotted a good opportunity for a bit of hearts and minds and began to fly more food in for the civilians. Swapu was suddenly the odd one out in this territory, as both the Angolan army and SADF paraded around together, and the South Africans spent quite a bit of time reminding the locals that Swapu were excluded. Colonel Johan Dippenau then sent a request to Fapla's commander for permission to address the local population. Permission was granted, and on the 11th and 13th of April, he fired up a megaphone and a translator. The SADF was trying to put on its friendliest face, and like Ronald MacDonald with Happy Meals, they handed out sweets, cold drinks and gifts for the children. The SADF also handed back church icons that they had looted from Mupa Mission Station, the main statue of Jesus and Mary, framed pictures and the expensive brass candlesticks. So by the 12th of April, the South African government gave the go-ahead for the next move and the JMC immediately sent a patrol to Ivali to reconnoitre for a possible HQ. The best site appeared to be a spot two kilometres north of the town and on the 14th of April, the locals were gathered together there by the JMC, who warned that the SADF and FAPLA were coming to Ivani. The JMC HQ moved in on the 16th of April, but FAPLA continued to have problems supplying their own troops. And in a highly unusual move, and one that was obviously wrapped in irony, FAPLA asked for permission to use the airfield at Onjiva to fly in their fixed-wing aircraft to resupply their troops. Onjiva was held by the South Africans, but obviously it was Angolan territory, so the Angolans had to ask permission to use their own base. But the problem was, Swapo was also known to be in the area and could mortar the Angolans when they landed. After 3-2 Battalion inspected the area and a joint patrol of SADF and FAPLA headed off to check that the airfield was still usable, all was well. So on the 19th of April, an Antonov 26 landed supplies from Kahama for FAPLA. These were then loaded onto trucks and sent north to Mupa. There was some debate now about how to move the rest of Fapla's equipment. They were in danger of being ambushed by Swapu, so the Angolans decided to send food and ammunition by road to Humbe from Kahama. They'd also managed to convince their own HQ back in Luanda to send them two MI-8 Soviet helicopters, which ended up ferrying the material to Mupa from Humbe. Now, FAPLA and the SADF could patrol together once more, and a FAPLA company joined 3-2 Battalion in the Chufafwa Shona, 60 kilometers east of Mupa. But it wasn't long before the joint patrol ran into Swapo near Tachipa. Three insurgents were shot, one was wounded in that contact. Meanwhile, things were beginning to go sour at the JMC. It was all about the understanding of what had been decided back in February during the Lusaka signing. What was also causing friction was Pretoria's continued support for UNITA. FAPLA and UNITA were fighting for control of the eastern portion of Angola 
and South Africa was supplying UNITA throughout this period. Pretoria didn't deny this, but blithely told the Angolans that according to the Lusaka Agreement, they weren't breaking any rules. FAPLA in turn refused to allow the joint monitoring patrols west of the Kuneni River and in the area between Kahama and Chikuse. Things had to be resolved at higher levels, so on the 25th of April, a high-level Angolan delegation led by the Interior Minister Quito Rodriguez and a South African delegation led by Foreign Minister Pick Boerter met back in Lusaka. Dr. Kenneth Kawinda greeted both sets of government officials with what was called his well-known courtesy before things went downhill. The Angolans were frank in their comments to the South Africans and it was all about UNITA. Angola demanded that Pretoria stop supplying UNITA and the South Africans demanded that the Angolans stop supplying the ANC. Eventually, the shouting and gesturing from all parties died down. There was no resolution to this impasse, so they both seemed to agree to differ and moved on to other matters. These included a prison of war swap. The SADF wanted one of their men back, and this would take place in exchange for one Cuban and 31 FAPLA troops held by the South Africans. All was agreed that the JMC patrols could in fact head west of the Kunani now and north of the initial monitoring line. While the politicians were doing their thing, things had improved between the soldiers on the ground back in southern Angola. 3-2 Battalion and FAPLA had spent three weeks east of Kuvalai and Mupa and had found no sign of Swapu, and there was no sign of them north of Avali either. So now it was decided to move the JMC HQ south to Onjiva. SADF intelligence, however, was picking up a few disquieting issues. Swapper insurgents captured during the joint patrols said they'd been told by FAPLA that once the JMC process had been wrapped up in May, they would go back to fighting as usual. That was food for thought. On the 29th of April, following another high-level meeting between Lieutenant General Heldenes and Angolan Vice Minister of External Affairs, De More, the JMC was set to move to Anjiva. A suitable HQ for the joint operation was identified six kilometres south of the town, just west of the tar road, and FAPLA's two MI8 helicopters flew in as part of the support team. By the 3rd of May, the JMC shifted to this spot. However, this is where the happy camping between FAPLA and the SADF came to an end. As far as a report compiled by the South Africans later was concerned, the closer that the Angolans came to the South West African border, the less they cared about the Lusaka Agreement. The first sign of bad faith came two days after the move to Onjiva. Lieutenant General Heldenes had invited de More for a meal and a discussion about the prisoner swap, but the Angolan was apparently in a foul mood. He'd taken offence at a South African Broadcasting Corporation report about how the JMC were fighting Swapu and told Heldenes the only way to secure peace in Angola was if the South Africans left Namibia. Things simmered down eventually and both sides agreed on the terms of the prisoner swap, which was set for the 14th of May. Before then, however, a number of incidents took place which soured relations. On the 11th of May, an SADF patrol operating solo clashed with 22 Swapo insurgents northeast of Oshikongo, close to the cutline. Two Swapo guerrillas were shot. Then later that day, the SADF came across a large cache of weapons near Chile, and on the 16th of May, they found another cache. Both sides now pointed fingers at each other. Farpler suggested it was amazing that the SADF had suddenly and miraculously discovered these caches, suggesting a plant, while the SADF said there'd be no move from Anjiva to Oshikongo 
until Swapo was sent packing. It was suggested a joint peacekeeping commission be set up after the JMC process ended. The South Africans met the Angolans once more in Lusaka on the 21st of May, headed by Pik Boto, but Luanda said they could not promise to control Swapo. They also hinted that they didn't believe Pretoria would stop supporting UNITA either. By now, the SADF thought that the Angolans were tipping Swapo off about the JMC patrols. Three two battalion soldiers were also being interrogated by FAPLA officers behind the backs of the South Africans. Remember these three two fighters, many came from Angola. The SADF swapped out three two battalion with two or one battalion of Vambo troops instead, along with one company of the SA Cape Corps. By the end of June nineteen eighty four, it was clear that the JMC and the honeymoon between the South Africans and the Angolans was finished. There were a number of meetings in Lusaka and in Onjiva and one in Rokana, but nothing was resolved. Yes, the joint patrols continued in the meantime, but the JMC was not going to move from Onjiva until Swapo's continued operations in the region were curtailed. The nail in the negotiating coffin was hammered in actually by Pretoria, offering the Angolans a clear-cut case to use against the SADF. On the 12th of August, Lieutenant General Heldnes signed a secret order permitting the SA Air Force to fly a photo reconnaissance mission over Zangongo, Kuvalai, Molondo and Techimoteti. The SADF had information that tanks could be seen in these areas and that the Angolans had reinstalled their radar facilities and beefed up battalions here, which was counter to the Lusaka Agreement. This was true, particularly the tanks which had arrived at Techimoteti. However, this also backfired because FAPLA received reports from the Russians that the SA Air Force had flown over, which was also an infringement of the Lusaka Agreement. Quite messy. By September, the agreement, which had always been impossible to manage, was dead in the water. It was ironic that political strategy had inverted. Now the South Africans were showing urgency to get this Lusaka Agreement finished, but the Angolans were not. It was in Luanda's interest to have the SADF marking time to the south. There was no danger of another invasion. They also knew where the SA Air Force and SADF were on a day-to-day basis, so this helped Swapo bypass the patrols. As you heard last episode, Pretoria was also still being put under extreme pressure by Washington to find a peaceful solution to Namibia. And Chester Crocker actually told the National Party that the Americans now thought that South Africa was deliberately delaying the withdrawal from Angola. While the SADF and FAPLA were trying to find themselves, the Rekis hadn't stopped special operations. In early 1984, and despite discussing land-based ceasefires, the SADF continued to focus on seaborne ops. The spec ops continued, and special forces were instructed to investigate the destruction of the main water plant supplying the Angolan capital Luanda. This facility was on the south bank of the Bengo River at Kufangonda, about five kilometers away from the river mouth. By now, there were hundreds of thousands of refugees inside Luanda. The Cubans had kept the pumping station going, but it was designed for only around 500,000 people, and most civilians actually received their daily water from tankers, and they had to pay for it per liter. But if the water plant was blown up, Government officials, the politically connected, and the well-off would feel the pinch. The poor in their informal camps had no running water whatsoever. By mid-1984, the South Africans had realized that the Lusaka Agreement was unlikely to achieve its aims, and they weren't naive enough to imagine that Luanda and Swapo 
would abide by the rules. Time to put an end to Luanda's water, thought Pretoria. But blowing up the facility would need a huge amount of plastic explosives, and it was only accessible through thick bush, which made movement difficult. After perusing photographs and receiving intel on the ground, the Reiki planners realized that the plant received water through two inlets on the bank of the Bengo River. They could destroy these inlets and the water would stop flowing into the plant. Because of the shallow nature of the river and the noise made by outboards, the only way into these inlets would be by using the clipper kayaks. Then approaching the inlet pipes and small kayaks represented their own dangers. These sucked in thousands of litres of water a minute. Paddlers would just be dragged away. And so the Reiki boffins came up with an interesting solution. They would manufacture two miniature radio-controlled boats weighing in at 20 kilograms each. Once in position, the kayak team would send explosive mini-boats into the pipe, and that would be that. Operation codename Bougainvillea was born. Commandant Hannes Fenter was OC, and Major Doe Stein was mission commander, while the sub-SAS Emily Hobhouse would insert the wreckies. By now, the Angolan Navy had been beefed up by the purchase of two OSA missile boats and the increased presence of the Soviet Navy. This was not going to be easy because the South Africans had to transport four recce teams to the target area using two Navy strike craft, the SAS Hendrik Metz and SAS Kubi Kutsia. Once in place, the recce teams would be moved from the strike craft to the sub. The SAS Proteus survey vessel would lurk south of the southwest African border just offshore in case of medical or other eventualities. Now the teams had to train hard. This was going to be a long paddle and heavily laden kayaks. Major Stain led the men, along with Corporal Sharky Becker, Lance Corporal Toby Tablai, Corporal Rods Rodriguez, Sergeant Maddies Adam, and Lance Corporal Manuel. After a few arduous weeks, the teams boarded the strike craft on the 31st of May 1984. Eventually, they rendezvoused with the sub-SAS Emily, 50 nautical miles from Luanda, on the 4th of June 1984. The four recce teams boarded the sub and submerged, heading to Luanda from the northwest, then passed on towards the Bengo River. There were a few fishermen about on their small boats. That night, the sub headed close in to shore until the 20-metre depth line, and Corporal Becker and Lance Corporal Tablai set off on their kayak to recon the river. It was dawn on the 5th of June when the Reckies were picked up by the sub. They had bad news. On the way to the water-purifying plant, they had been forced to stop at a bridge which had bright security lights and sentries who were wide awake. Still, there was a small chance of success. At nightfall, the sub returned to the Bengo River. Two other teams were going to head back up that river, carrying the mini-boats packed with explosives, their AK-47s, the Sterling Patchett silent submachine gun, two pistols, a radio, and their fins and masks in case they had to ditch the kayaks. Stain led them into the river mouth, and they paddled towards the bridge. The sentries were wide awake. The lights were bright. They'd never make it past there once they blasted the water pipes further upriver, so they called off their attempt and paddled back to the Atlantic, this time at high speed because the river was pushing them along. A few hours later, the subs located them through their pingers and strobe lights. As they clambered on board the submarine, one of the men slipped and plunged into the sea, sinking like a stone. Stain managed to grab him as he slid into the depths, but he had thrown off his firearms, which were dragging him down. The Reckies had learnt a lot from their mission. As you'll hear next episode, the JMC 
may have been limping to its inevitable conclusion, but the Rekis had a much bigger mission in mind. They planned to blow up three of the Angolans' all-important Oso missile boats inside Luanda Harbour during the dark moon period at the end of July 1984. With that, we end this episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the series' visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.